Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today in the book of Luke, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, with a message titled, The Divine Must. So turning your Bibles to Luke 2, 41 to 52, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Luke, of all the gospel writers, tells one single story about the boyhood of Jesus. All the other gospel writers are silent on that issue, and it's interesting. See, normally a biography will include something about the genealogical background of the person in question. Both Luke and Matthew do that. They also will include something of the subject's childhood, the experience they had, which shaped their approach to life, and that helps the biographers, as well as the reader, understand why the subject acted the way he or she did. The gospel writers, apart from the incident that's recorded by Luke, give us nothing about the childhood of Jesus. They skip from birth, which Mark and John doesn't even include, right to the appearance of Jesus and the beginning of his public ministry. And that little insight tells us why the gospels, as we read them, are different from standard biographies. The gospels are interested in telling us the events of Jesus' ministry that changed the world and brought the kingdom of God to men. Now, with this one exception, Luke tells us something about Jesus' childhood that really does explain why Jesus acts in the way he does. Jesus, says Luke, had a motivation that guided him through all of life. He had to be about his father's business. Now, what I mean to stress here is that there was, from his childhood on, a central driving motivation. One commentator called this a divine must. That is, he was never acting on his own accord. There were things that he must do. Luke 4, 42 to 43. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for that purpose. See, did you notice that? Jesus would gladly have stayed with that group of people. They loved him. They encouraged him to stay. The only reason he didn't is he had a divine must. I must, he said, go to other towns. The Father sent me for that purpose. So if I didn't go, I'd be disobeying the Father. Go ahead to Luke 9, 21 to 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, notice Jesus didn't say, you know, my enemies are going to rise against me and they're going to cause me to suffer. Rather, he communicates to his disciples that he must suffer. He must die. He must be raised from the dead. This is a command from the Father. The reason Jesus didn't hide from suffering or find another pathway forward is that the Father commanded him to suffer. And so if he didn't suffer, he would be disobeying his Father. See, it's an important thing to grasp this. It tells us everything we need to know about the motivation of Jesus. It was a motivation that guided him throughout all of his actions. And two things need to be said before we proceed. Luke tells us this so that we might understand the nature of Jesus and why it is that in the end of the day, he remained sinless. But for us who read this, this is a trait, although we'll never be able to emulate this perfectly, this should be our aim as well. Even as Jesus had a divine must in his life, 
so also we must have a divine must in our lives. It's necessary for each of us to know what God has called us to do and to be about the Heavenly Father's business. Stop asking what we'd like to do or what fulfills us or how we can be as happy and fulfilled as the next guy or gal. Instead, start asking, what does the master wish of me? And if it's his desire that your life is harder or for that matter, easier than the next person's, don't let that trouble you or even influence you. Rather, you should be asking, what has my God commanded of me? And then I must be about that. So let's go to Luke 2, 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and man. So let's follow this story through. Jesus at this time is 12. Our text tells us that Mary and Joseph, as observant Jews, traveled from their hometown in Nazareth all the way to Jerusalem. It was a rather lengthy journey. It's about 145 kilometers. You've got to imagine walking that. Now, the law demanded that all male Jews of a mature age were required to attend not one, but three feasts every year. Those would have been Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. But as time passed, that became very difficult. Some Jews lived in what was called the Diaspora. That was way too far for them to go. And others like Mary and Joseph, who would have lived on limited means, and that would have meant a long travel, they could never have accomplished this. And so it became custom in Israel for faithful Jews to go to one festival every year. Joseph would have gone to Passover. Women weren't required to go, but a great many famous rabbis of that day strongly encouraged the women to go as well. So at any rate, the feast lasted seven full days, and we know that some Jews, for all manner of reasons, didn't stay all full seven, but from this text, it seems clear, Mary and Joseph stayed the entire time. You know, imagine it would take them, let's say, seven days to get there. They'd stay for seven days, another seven days to get home. It was a major journey. And so Luke tells us that the seven days in Jerusalem are up and everyone's on their way home. And sometimes Bible readers have wondered how it was that Joseph and Mary could travel all day on the first day and not known that Jesus wasn't with them. But if we understand the custom of the day, that's not hard to understand. See, the custom of travel often had women and children traveling in the front and then the men and the young men traveling in the rear. Now, if this was the case, think again, Jesus is 12. Normally, we think of the Jewish bar mitzvah. That happened at 13 when boys were then considered to be men. Jesus is 12. 
So which group does he belong to? Well, it might be that Mary thought, because the boy is getting older, he's probably traveling with dad. He wants to be a man. And Joseph assumes he's traveling with mom. And then, as was the custom at the end of the one day of travel, everyone gets together, men and women. They would have gotten together again. And it's only then they would have noticed Jesus wasn't there. That's day one. Now, the text says they searched for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And I have to assume that would have been done at the end of day one. And I assume then that day two consisted in traveling the 20 kilometers or so back. You know, by that time, they'd have been frustrated and very nervous. Our text says they found him after three days. So day one's traveling home. They don't find him. Day two, they're traveling back to Jerusalem and, of course, don't find him. And at some time on day three, they finally find him in the temple. And to their shock, they find him among the teachers and the theologians. So let's see if we can imagine this. Since Jerusalem is the capital and the place where the temple resided, we assume that the weightiest theologians in the country were right there. And of course, they were teaching the people during the Passover feast. So the crowd that packed Jerusalem during that time would have made it a very difficult time for the 12-year-old Jesus to have access to any of those teachers. But now the crowd's gone and he has access. So Mary and Joseph find him in the temple and Luke says he's listening and asking questions. And the teaching style of the teachers in many ways would be different from what many of us are accustomed to. See, we think of teachers, they lecture, and then they leave opportunity for questions. But I once had a professor who demanded that we do considerable reading before every class, and when we came to class, he would not lecture. He only answered questions about what we asked as a result of our reading, and he answered to deepen our understanding. And I assume that's what was going on. The questions Jesus was asking showed he had a great deal of understanding, and his questions and his comments were, quite frankly, jaw-dropping for a 12-year-old. People were no doubt whispering, I mean, who in the world is this kid? He might become one of the greatest rabbis we've ever had. God sees every day that is to come. More so, he steers time and space towards his purposes. Not only are our times in his hands, but his hand touches everything and everyone. That's the theme of Dr. John Neufeld's new book. Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to present In All Things, God's Providence. In this 190-page text, Dr. John teaches the providence of God. His book traces the thread of God's constant engagement with creation. Rather than a dry doctrine, Dr. John demonstrates how God's providence is the hope, comfort, and confidence for us all. So, for this month only, we want to make In All Things available at an exclusive feature price of only $5. Or if you prefer ebooks, you'll be able to download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. To purchase your copy today, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That Jesus at the age of 12 would have read and comprehended a great part of Scripture, well, that shouldn't surprise us. The local synagogues would have all housed a copy of the Scriptures. 
the scribes would have been doing their job making sure each local worshiping community had access to the Word of God. Jesus, like many of his contemporaries, would have been literate. Indeed, the literacy rate among Jews was higher than the rest of the world because the Jews thought it was essential that everyone could read the Word of God and study it. That's how you're faithful to God. And Jesus would, as a young boy, have had this as his worldview. And if I might add a word to parents here, this is how you raise godly sons and daughters. Parents, as well as local churches, need to have a partnership. We should make it a requirement that all our children read and read well so that they're able to read the Bible with comprehension so that they can ask as well as discuss as well as be instructed in what they're reading and studying. Moms and dads, you must not neglect this instruction in the faith of your children. That's how we become followers of Christ. Well, let's get back to Jesus. Whoever was there in Nazareth, who would have been able to teach him, would not have been the finest teachers in the land. And at first glance, it would appear this is his motivation. We might, if this is all that Luke would have had relayed to us, that Jesus wanted the opportunity to get the best religious education that the land had for him. Indeed, as the story moves forward, we encounter the astonishment of his parents. At first, we have to assume that they find him, and at that very moment, he's in dialogue with a crowd watching and They're commenting that they've never seen a 12-year-old like this before. And Luke says they're astonished. And I have to assume that, you know, Luke interviewed Mary about this story, and no doubt she was the one who told him that this was a jaw-dropping moment for her and Joseph. And you got to wonder why. I mean, after all, Mary and Joseph knew that Jesus' birth was miraculous. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph took him to the temple where Simeon had prophesied about the child. This child was the salvation of the world, he said. And furthermore, if we go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 40, Luke tells us that the child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And so it was no surprise to them that he was an unusual child who grasped the wisdom of God with great eagerness. But understand that Jesus is fully human. Luke says he grew in wisdom. That is, Jesus, although we expect him to be quick in learning, still had to learn, had to acquire, had to mature, still had to go over information in the same way that every other child does. And I think the point is that neither Mary or Joseph were aware at just how advanced the 12-year-old Jesus had become. There's something else here. Mary and Joseph have been greatly inconvenienced. See, by this time, they should have been close to home. No doubt the additional cost they incurred by going back to Jerusalem, as well as the things that they needed now to go back, this was pressing on them. Their son, as advanced and pure in heart as he was, had created a real problem for them. And so Mary's the one to speak, and she says two things. And I'll repeat the the second thing first. She says that his father and mother have been searching for him in great distress, anxiety. You know, perhaps something has happened to him, they thought. And they find him in the temple, and he didn't even tell them where he was. So that's their first reaction. Well, the first thing Mary said is this. Why, she asks, have you treated us this way? And that's a natural reaction. The anxiety that you've cost us, that's not right. You've acted badly. That's what she implies. And is she right? See, that's the question. And from the outset, we might say, yeah, that wasn't right. He slipped up. And someone might say, huh, looks like he sinned. But listen to Jesus, 12-year-old, he gives an answer. 
It's not that he's not aware that his absence has brought difficulty. He seems completely aware of this, but he says, I had to take this action. I must. He even says to them, why were you looking for me, searching as if you don't know where I might be? And now comes the telling question. Did you not know? I must, and that's our word, I must be in my father's house. Now, we might want to notice that at the age of 12, Jesus is fully aware of his identity. And that gives rise to some very interesting thoughts. Just when did Jesus become aware of who he was? Because he's not only fully God, he's fully man. And we can say with absolute assurance that when he was an infant, he did not know who he was. I don't think he knew who he was at the age of one. But somewhere along the way, in the days he spent in the local synagogue and studying the law, in the time as a young boy he spent praying and also communicating with his mother, he becomes aware, maybe slowly, perhaps by revelation, of his identity. He begins to know he is the Son of God. And thus he knows when he's in the temple, he's in his father's house. Now, to be clear, when we say that we who have converted are the sons and daughters of God, we mean something different. Look, we're the sons and daughters of God because in mercy, God has adopted us into his family. That's not so with Jesus. He's the only begotten of the father who has always existed from all eternity. And so when he goes to the temple, he knows the temple is his temple. And it's stunning. And that's what Jesus tells his parents. Look, I know who I am. And as a matter of fact, you know who I am as well. And so it shouldn't shock you that if I stay here longer, I'm staying in the place that belongs to my heavenly father. And thus, I must be here. See, the Father God had demanded that Jesus remain, and Jesus is saying, no matter what the cost and no matter how great the misunderstanding I might have with you, I must do this. It is my obligation. If you give me a command, I will do that command unless the command you give me is contrary to the command of my Father in heaven. And so at the age of 12, Jesus demonstrates this understanding both of his identity as the eternal son of the living God, but also he demonstrates as the one fully equal with the father, he will obey the father. I suppose the point of application here should strike us, shouldn't it? If he who is fully God obeys God to the point of leading to misunderstanding in his family, what's the lesson for us? Is it not this, that if the son of God is fully obedient to the father, is it not imperative that we are fully obedient to the father? Whatever the Father of our souls commands us, that we must do. And that starts for us in a commitment that whenever we find a clear command in the Bible, we are not in a position to refuse. What God has commanded, we must obey. We also have a divine must. Now, clearly, in the case of Jesus, he does not have a command in Scripture that he should remain in the temple for three days. And we have to assume that the Father spoke to him directly realizing that these days were required for the ongoing development of the Son of Man. Unless we think that this was simply an excuse for Jesus to do what he wanted, Luke tells us specifically that after the event in the temple, that Jesus followed his parents to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That is, Jesus, while he was growing up, was not a lawless young man. The fifth commandment was a command for Jesus as well. Honor your father and mother. Indeed, the obedience that the Son of God, as fully human, owed to his earthly parents was not a command that Jesus could ignore. Inasmuch as Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father, 
when the Father commanded him to remain in Jerusalem in order to learn and grow, it's also true that the Son of God could not, notice I said he could not, he had a divine must that he must honor his father and mother on earth. See, this is a lesson that the 12-year-old Jesus can teach all of us. Don't claim that you're obeying the call of God while you live in violation to the teachings of Scripture. And I say that because I have met people who claim God has spoken to them about one thing or another, and at the same time, we find these people living in disobedience to Scripture. They're not humble. They use excuses that God has spoken directly to them to be lawless and arrogant and portray themselves as superior to the rank-and-file Christian who simply reads his or her Bible and seeks to, you know, obey it by the help of the Spirit. Learn from the 12-year-old Jesus who knew he was the only begotten son of the eternal father, and yet, because scripture commanded him, he submitted to Joseph and to Mary. You know, Luke ends this section by saying that Mary treasured all this up in her heart. You know, it became to her this sacred memory that, you know, continued to exist in her. And Luke, no doubt, interviewed her on this, and this might have been quite a conversation. Luke then ends this section, says, he simply says that Jesus continued to grow and mature, increased in wisdom, as well as favor with God and with men. That is, he's always concerned to please God. He's always concerned, wherever possible, to live in peace with and in a respectful relationship with the people around him. What a lesson. The Son of God came not to do his own will, but to submit to the will of the Father. He had a divine must and was never free to pursue his own will. His attitude set the stage, says Luke, for the entire earthly ministry of Jesus, and it sets the stage for our lives as well. Thanks so much, John. You know, I was thinking, we serve a merciful and forgiving God, but do you think we we take Jesus' commands lightly as a result of that? Well, perhaps we do. You know, I mean, uh, maybe we think, you know, I can disobey all of the commands and still receive mercy. But the mercy that we receive is, yes, it is the mercy of forgiveness. What a treasure that is. But the mercy that we have also received is the mercy that allows us to be followers of Jesus, to be obedient from the heart, to bow the knee to him, and to recognize that he is Lord and we're not, What mercy it is to recognize that. What mercy it is to follow him. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Faith is never disappointed. Back to the Bible Canada can testify to the hand of God in and through this ministry. As one of our listeners reports, we want to be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. Beyond a doubt, God will accomplish His purposes. He chooses to employ His faithful people as His hands. As we begin a new year, may I ask you to consider a financial gift to support and sustain this ministry, or perhaps even consider becoming a monthly partner at the beginning of 2024. Your generosity allows us to enter into this new year fully supplied for what the Lord has in store 
for His kingdom. To give a gift or become a monthly partner, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.